I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading through the New Testament, we'll be looking at John chapters 15 through 17. Jesus here is addressing his 12 on the eve of his crucifixion. This uh, meeting began back in John chapter 13. They're in Jerusalem, and as I mentioned, it's the day before, the night before, should I say, the crucifixion. And Jesus is explaining how this spiritual kingdom that he began talking about, how it works. Verse 1 of John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Chapter 15 here is a continuation of the discourse of John chapter 14. This all took place on the eve of the crucifixion after they observed the Passover supper, which actually began back in John chapter 13. Jesus has been talking about individual entry into the spiritual kingdom, in other words, personal salvation. Now, specifically, here's how this spiritual kingdom operates. Jesus is the vine, God is the vine dresser. We see that in verse 1. Verse 2 begins, "Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away." Now, I'm convinced that this speaks of the disobedient, unprofitable believer whose physical life is cut prematurely short because of continued disobedience, such is the case with the disobedient believers in Corinth, referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Now, verse 2 continues here, "...and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit." This purging or pruning of verse 2 is undoubtedly the maturing process of trial that obedient believers undergo in the process of living the Christian life. The Word of God is the pruning instrument. 
If you want to understand more about this process of trial, look at my article entitled Trial, Testing, and Temptation under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Or in the written notes for today's reading, there's a link there where you see process of trial underlined. Click on that and you'll be taken to that article. The Word of God, by the way, is the pruning instrument. Now, verse 3 is a universal statement of fact with regard to the purifying effect of God's Word on believers. It's simple. Staying in God's Word makes one spiritually clean and strong. Verses 4 and 5 indicate that our entire success as believers rest upon the empowerment of Jesus Christ through the cleansing effect of the Word of God. That's what we see in verse 3. In other words, one cannot abide, verses 4 and 5, without the continual cleansing effect of the Word. Now, verse 6 is a little difficult. Jesus may be presenting one of three scenarios here. All right, first of all, let's look at verse 6 again. Let me read it to you. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. All right, let's look at three different scenarios. Perhaps, scenario number one, the unregenerate have no part in Christ, thus the fire there would be understood as hell. All right, let's look at a second scenario. Those who were in the vine but ceased to bear fruit were overtaken by men and lost their public testimony. In the second case, in this scenario, the fire would not be understood as hell, since the word abide comes from the Greek word meno, which means to remain in the same state. This scenario is a stronger contender than scenario number one. Now let's look at scenario number three. Perhaps Jesus is talking about Judas in this verse. After all, this is the very night Judas betrayed Jesus and is doing so at the very time that Jesus is making this presentation. If this scenario is the correct one, then the usage of the Greek word meno speaks of Judas failing to remain with Jesus. Since Jesus identified Judas as diabolical early in his earthly ministry, back in John chapter 6, verse 70, We know that Judas was never spiritually abiding in Christ, only physically accompanying Jesus. If Jesus is talking about Judas here, then the fire is a reference to hell. Now, in order to assist the student of the Bible in making an informed decision regarding verse 6 here, let's do a word-for-word translation. I mean, a Greek-to-English substitution for the words in this verse. And so here it is, translated myself. If a certain one might not remain in me. And I've listed in the written notes of BibleTrack.org why I've translated it in such a way. That's an aorist subjunctive, and that's why we have the might not have remained in me. If a certain one might not remain in me, he, she writ, was cast out without as the branch. And he was dried up. And they gather the same, and into the fire they cast. And he is being burned. Now, the details of why I've translated that way are written between those sentences that I just read you. It's interesting to me that the Greek aorist tense is used in this verse up to the words dried up. But the present tense is used for the balance of the verse. While the Greek aorist tense indicates a point in time, usually it's past tense, but not always, rather than a continuing action, which is the sense in which we translate present tense, 
the tense change here in the middle of this verse is kind of curious. That would seem to lend credibility to scenario number three that we talked about. Maybe Jesus is addressing the Judas betrayal issue. Now, verses 7 and 8 indicate that the natural process of the believer is to bear fruit. But what is this fruit? This fruit is obviously the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. That, those two verses say this, "...but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law." That's the kind of fruit that we expect a believer to bear. It's important to note that bear and bring forth in this chapter, both come from the exact same Greek word, pharaoh. In this passage, it's found in verses 2, 4, 5, 8, and 16. Therefore, the bring forth fruit of verse 16 cannot refer to winning people to Christ as some have taught. Jesus would not have changed definitions of the same word within the context of the same discourse. Instead, it refers to the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in believers' everyday lives. Now, notice the emphasis on uh, brotherly love Jesus makes in verses 11 through 17. Here's the reality. When the Holy Spirit is working in believers' lives, it's because they're abiding in Christ through the cleansing of the Word of God and subsequently being led by the Holy Spirit of God. Since the leadership of the Holy Spirit manifests itself in love, we saw that in Galatians 5, and 23, then such a believer will naturally love other believers. That linkage is further supported by the fact that earlier in this discourse, Jesus said this in John 13, 34, and 35. He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. There, a few minutes earlier, Jesus cites brotherly love as the commandment he makes reference to here in John chapter 15, verse 10, when he says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So the first attribute of Holy Spirit leadership listed in Galatians 5.22 is love, which just happens to be the commandment of John chapter 15, verse 10, and also of John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. But we're going to see this in the next section of Scripture, verses 18 to 27. Not everybody's going to appreciate you. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Well, the world hated Christ. We all know that. 
and they'll hate his followers as well. Now understand this. The world today ridicules Christ and Christians. When believers stand up for their principles, the world order of our day and the world order of Jesus' day, it does everything it can to discredit us. Jesus quotes from Psalm 69, 4 and verse 25 when he says, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Back then they hated Jesus because he disrupted their religious practice, practice that emphasized form over sincerity, actions over attitude. They practiced a hypocrisy that really didn't focus on the true worship of God. Now, regarding Christians in this world, here's how Paul expresses it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the Apostle John, he said it like this in 1 John 3.13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Well, it's clear. Taking an uncompromising stand for the principles of Jesus Christ will draw fire from the established world order, both in Jesus' day and in our day. Whenever you find someone living for Christ 24-7, he's usually categorized as a religious fanatic. And the religious form over substance people take offense when they see that. People, for the most part, want just enough religious activity in their lives to relieve some guilt. But that's the extent of it. When they see someone who takes his Christian life seriously, the sense of guilt they often feel causes them to want to characterize the normal, the normal Christian life. They want to characterize that as abnormal. So what about those religions that proclaim a love for God at the exclusion of Jesus Christ? Notice verse 23. It says this, He that hateth me hateth my father also. That's consistent with the words of Jesus earlier that same evening in John fourteen six, when there he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Well, it's definitely a package deal. There is no favor with God without the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as one Savior. That brings us to chapter 16, where Jesus puts his comments into perspective. Verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. So chapter 16 here is a continuation of the discourse that began back in John chapter 14. This theme regarding the world's disdain for our faith continues from the end of chapter 15. Now don't be caught by surprise when the world doesn't warm up to your walk with Christ. What might one expect? Notice these sobering words in verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. Let's face it. Believers who abide in Christ are just never going to be very popular with the worldly crowd. Earlier in this discourse, Jesus referenced the Holy Spirit as the comforter that would soon come in John chapter 14, verses 16 and again in verse 26. He mentions it again here in verse 26 in the context that the Holy Spirit will bring us comfort when believers are hated by the world. 
Jesus will elaborate additionally in John chapter 16, verse 7, when we get to that in just a few seconds. That brings us to John chapter 16, beginning with verse 5. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see him no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to my Father? They said, Therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Well, earlier in this discourse, Jesus had told them that he was leaving to prepare a place for them. He said that back in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. He points out here in verses 5 and 6 that his disciples seemed to be focused on the loss of presence of Jesus rather than Jesus' destination and future work. For that reason, Jesus goes into some detail regarding the coming empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, then will I send him unto you. The word Comforter used here comes from the Greek word parakletos. It's used only five times in the New Testament. That's John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26. John chapter 15, verse 26. And then John chapter 16, verse 7. And then one more time in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where there it's translated advocate instead. Now, Jesus clearly identifies this comforter to be the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 26. Therefore, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is the equivalent of the presence of Jesus Christ. It's important to understand that all believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. The Holy Spirit facilitates our salvation to begin with, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, there can't be salvation. As a matter of fact, Paul says so directly in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, when he says this, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. 
A further benefit of the Holy Spirit's presence in believers is spiritual understanding. Look at verse 13, where we see this. He will guide believers to understand spiritual things. Verses 8 through 11 here might seem a little cryptic to you. Here's what they say. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Here's the sense I think we derive from these verses. The Holy Spirit comes after Jesus has ascended on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit will identify distinctions. Three listed here. One, sin for those who have rejected Christ as Savior. Number two, righteousness for those who accept Jesus and the finished work that he performed on the cross for salvation. And number three, condemnation or judgment has been passed on the ruler, that's the prince of the world that's talking about Satan. The Old Testament looked for a messianic redemption, an act that Satan was determined to thwart. At the sacrificial death of Jesus and subsequent glorification, Satan's attempts failed. Incidentally, the Greek word for prince, archon, in verse 11 is never used as a description of Jesus. Moreover, the prince is rather clearly identified by Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 30, which says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Paul refers to Satan himself as the prince of the power of the air when we get over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus also attributes these activities to the Holy Spirit after Jesus has ascended to heaven. In verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. Also in verse 13, he will show you things to come. In verse 14, he, that's the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, talking about Jesus. And finally, in verse 15, he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. It's clear that the Holy Spirit is the key to sound doctrine as well as godly Christian living. In verses 16 to 22, Jesus goes into some detail about his crucifixion and ascension. Verse 20 frames the discussion. Here's what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned in joy. The disciples will be sad when Jesus is crucified, but Satan's forces will be happy. However, in the final outcome, sorrow shall be turned into joy. That brings us to John chapter 16, verses 23 to 33, where we'd be talking about prayer, power, and persecution. Verse 23, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God." I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world again. I leave the world, and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. 
Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Here we see that the disciples are starting to understand the necessity of the crucifixion, the physical absence of Jesus and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that will follow. Prayer power will be experienced by anyone who prays in the name of Jesus. Many believers are confused about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Look at my commentary, written notes, the commentary on John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, for a clear explanation of the concept of praying in Jesus' name. Jesus' disciples then indicate that they are beginning to get the picture in verses 29 and 30. Jesus then explains to them that persecution is going to be upon them and prophesies that they will scatter. Verse 33 is an assurance verse for them and for us, which says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now we come to the prayer that Jesus prays for the disciples. Verse 1 in chapter 17. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil." They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word." that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, 
that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me Be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus offers this prayer prior to entering the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, this is not the prayer in Gethsemane reported in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 26, 36-45, Mark 14, 32-41, and Luke 22, 39-46, and also John chapter 18, verse 1. This is not that prayer. This prayer of Jesus is divided into three parts. First of all, in verses 1-5, through Jesus' prayer concerning himself. Earthly ministry mission is accomplished. Only the crucifixion and resurrection to go to complete the transaction. Life eternal is defined by Jesus as knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ here in verse 3. The second section is Jesus' prayer for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. He prays for their deliverance from the evil assault of the near future. Judas gets very dishonorable mention in verse 12 where his betrayal of Jesus is shown to be his destiny. He was not a good man who made a mistake. Jesus describes him as the son of perdition. If you'd like additional insight on that, say the notes that I've written on John chapter 6, verse 70. Verse 12 here takes on an additional significance in John chapter 18, verse 9. John tells us that this was fulfilled as Jesus protected his disciples from harm at his capture. You'll also notice that Jesus prays for his followers, not that they would withdraw from the world after his departure, but that they would refrain from indulging in the world's godless activities. Jesus' prayer for all believers, present and future, is seen in verses 20 to 26. He prays for the unity of believers. It's not until this prayer is finished that Jesus and his disciples enter the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 18, verse 1. Now, you might ask this question. If Jesus is God, why did he pray? Well, the answer is to be found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Here's what it says. Paul writing, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It says here that Jesus, in Paul's writing, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now that was the mortal state of Jesus at the time of this prayer and leading up to his crucifixion. At that point in time, he communicated with God in prayer just as we do. In his prayer, Jesus declares in verses 17 through 19 that we, as believers, are sanctified, meaning set apart, through the cleansing of the Word of God. Thus we are sanctified by the truth of the Word of God because Jesus sanctified. That's the Greek word hagiadzo, which means to set apart. 
Jesus sanctified himself for the crucifixion. It's vitally important that believers understand the value of embracing and studying God's Word, the Bible, as a regular routine in their daily Christian walk. Strong believers spend regular time daily reading and studying God's Word. And that's why I'm committed to providing this commentary to all believers everywhere. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton. 